Let's go ahead and get started tonight. We're going to jump right in. Welcome back. We were off last week, Easter week, but today we're back. I want to resume and pick up the study on the doctrines of grace. And we're going to do that tonight. Just to quickly bring you back up to speed. And for those who are, some of those new with us tonight, welcome. And those even who have been here, a quick, quick little recap is in order. So this Wednesday evening series that we've been doing so far on the doctrines of grace. We start off, and we've been through several lessons already, and I guess you could say the first phase, the first part so far, has all been about starting with the sin problem and understanding how the sin problem has affected the human condition after the fall. And so we studied a lesson on the fall and original sin, total depravity and total inability, and we found a very bleak picture, even that our wills that God created with, uh, created us with, are not actually free, but bound to sin, uh, to sin and to Satan. Now, if you missed lessons one through six, I, I'd encourage you to go on the website, download them, listen to them, get the PDFs, because we, we started with those on purpose. It's the foundation. And when you're studying the doctrines of grace, there actually is a, a logical order. And you like building a house, you want to start with the foundation. So... It's okay, you won't. Uh, you'll still be able to follow along for tonight, but the more you want to get out of this study, I would go back and, and, and make sure you're, you're up to speed on the foundation, which is the, the doctrine of sin, total depravity, total inability. You've got to get those right first, and so do that. But starting last time, we moved into, you could say, a second phase or a part two overall in this study, and that is to address how God saves us, how, how God deals with this huge sin problem that we have. And, that's, and we're starting with the, the concept of the doctrine of election. Last time, Lesson 6, we did an intro to God's sovereignty, which refers to his comprehensive rule over his creation. God is seen to be in control of all things. He's sovereign over nature, over nations, over the lives of, of people, including their free acts, even their sinful acts, life and death itself. And we learned that all last time, God's sovereign over everything. He even uses evil for his good purposes, although he himself does not do evil. So last time, our our introduction to God's sovereignty, we found the Bible paints a picture of a very big God. he's, He's powerful. He's almighty. He sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He orders all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. But we left off with one last question concerning God's sovereignty, which is his rule of his creation. Does God actually use his sovereignty to affect the salvation of sinners? Or in other words, we saw God sovereign in in nations and nature and and people's lives. Is God also sovereign in salvation? Is he actually sovereign in salvation? And that's what we come to talk about starting tonight with the, the concept of the doctrine of election. We're getting more specific now, and we're asking whether God really uses his sovereign power to choose some for salvation or not. Does God truly predestine some to salvation, determining beforehand who will be saved or not? Does his plan for the world, including such a choice, these people will be saved, these people will be not? The answer to that question is yes, and the doctrine describing God's choice of some sinners for salvation is known as election. Now, when you hear election, or when others at least hear election, the, the word even, they want to plug their ears, they don't want to listen to it, they don't want to hear any more of it. It's so associated with 
a caricature of these you know, crazy fundamentalist Christians. Well, you might not know that, however, is that both Calvinists and Arminians believe in election. That fact surprises some Calvinists because they're so used to, to thinking that Arminians are opposed to everything they believe about election. It also surprises some Arminians. They didn't know they're supposed to believe in election. But according to their own system, they, they fully believe in, in the fact of election. Now, there's people on both sides. You know, this whole study, we're exploring these, the doctrines of grace and the, the debate around these two sides, which we've traced back throughout all church history, from Calvin and Arminius back to Augustine and Pelagius, all about God's role and our role in salvation. Is it primarily a work of God, God alone, monergistic, or is it work of God and man together, cooperatively, synergistic? So you know how the debate goes. Many people on both sides, they, they merely blindly subscribe to the, the system of the church they grew up in or just their social circle. There, there are various reasons for that. But you should know, though, both sides of this long debate, Calvinists and Arminians, we would call them today, they both affirm the basic concept of election, namely that God chooses or predestines some for salvation. The basic fact of election is so clear in scripture that neither side really denies it. At least anyone that claims to believe the Bible, they don't deny the fact of election. Now, of course, of course, both sides differ on how God elects people, how he makes such a choice. That's where the difference lies, how God elects. We'll talk about that in future lessons. But tonight, it's still worth our time, especially if this is new to you, to simply establish first the fact of election. That election, on both sides of the debate, it's simply a fact of Scripture. God chooses. God does some choosing. God makes his choice, or supposed choice. How? We'll find out later, and that will be the difference. But for now, we just want to establish the basic fact. Somehow, the Bible teaches, somehow God chooses some. He elects, he predestines some, but not all, to salvation. Again, both believe. Go back to Arminius, Wesley, the two chief Arminian theologians of recent history. And they both affirmed election. So today, you might meet an Arminian who totally denies election itself. And, and they think, you know, no, you Calvinists, you're the guys that believe in election. We don't. Uh, if, you, if you find someone like that, it, you already know you're dealing with someone who is simply just ignorant to their own system and to scripture because both affirm merely the fact of election. So that's what we're going to say tonight. Basically, the fact of election. Another kind of introductory message, just getting you up to speed. And then next week, we really dive into clarifying the differences between how God elects, what really separates these two groups. Now to get started, some basic definitions are in order. You have these on your handout from last time. Uh, starting with predestination, just to throw it out there. You've heard of the term providence. That's usually the term we use to refer to God's sovereignty, his ordering of the world, of nature, of nations. It's God's providence at work. While predestination, that's the word typically reserved for God's sovereignty applied to salvation, of him ordering his will to save some. So that's predestination. Many would include under predestination both God's decision to save some people, which is election, and to pass over others, 
which is called reprobation. And so you also have in your notes uh, quick definitions of these. Election, I'll just read it for you again. Election can be defined as an act of God before the foundation of the world, whereby he chooses some people for salvation. Now, election can sometimes concern groups of people, like Israel, a nation. And sometimes it can concern individuals. Also, election in the Bible sometimes refers to God's choice of a person unto service. And sometimes it refers to his choice of a person unto salvation. And we're going to look at all that tonight, actually. And then there's another concept called reprobation. Reprobation can be defined as a decision of God before the foundation of the world to pass over some persons, not intervening to save them, but allowing them to receive the just punishment of their own sins. Election is all about the elect. Reprobation is all about the unelect and seeks to explain why weren't they saved? Why weren't they chosen? Why were they passed over? That's reprobation. Now, Arminians will affirm the fact of election, but they do not affirm anything about reprobation. That is a distinctive of Calvinism. And we will later spend a whole lesson later on studying that fact itself, whether or not scripture teaches this concept of reprobation. So we'll get there. It's big enough that we'll save it after we get through more foundational material for its own lesson later on. So like I said, though, today... Got some basic definitions squared up, but we're kind of framing the discussion because, again, you don't want to miss the next kind of month of teaching where we really get into this, the, the meat of election and the differences between the two. But again, today I just want to use our time to establish the fact of election from Scripture. Just a, a good old-fashioned Bible study on election in general and all the different facets of election in Scripture. How God chooses, we'll save it for next week. But let's just look at the fact of God's choice all over Scripture tonight. So that's what we're going to do. Now, your homework wasn't actually homework. It was more just kind of notes in advance. So feel free to follow along. We're going to just go through and explore the verses that we have in our, in our notes here and see what they say. So we begin with this first category. We're going to start with corporate election. There's two, two overall categories of election in Scripture, corporate election and individual election. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God's corporate election, where he's choosing an entire group of people. Obviously, we're, we're usually talking about Israel when that's the case. In Old Testament, God's corporate election of national Israel. And then Scripture has a lot to say about individual election. We'll get to that in a little bit. But let's start with corporate election. Sometimes election is national. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want to follow along, Deuteronomy 7. You have Genesis 12, which speaks of God's choice of Abram to make him into a nation. And there's an example we won't read, but you see God's unilateral call of this pagan named Abram, where God chose him out of all the people on the earth. God chose him, called him, made a nation out of him. God did the choosing. In Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 10, we'll see a couple of verses talking about God's choice of Israel, though, national Israel. And notice how God chose them or, or why God chose them. Now, I don't do this often, but I'm not sure about you. Uh, I, think, I think it's just allergies, but past few days I've been, like, locked up in my sinuses. So, and so is Don, actually, but I've asked him to be my reader just to spare my voice a little bit. But he's pretty... He's pretty Locked up as well. So I think between the two of us, we'll, we'll get through this. 
So, you know, bear with us both. But Don will be the reader and just uh, follow along. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Don, I want you to do some reading for us. Okay. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you notice this is a, a key point in Deuteronomy where God's explaining his choice of Israel. They're holy. He set them apart unto himself. Uh, verse 6 says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. Clearly, God did the choosing. Why did God choose Israel? You'll notice his choice was unconditional. They weren't smarter. They weren't bigger. They weren't more powerful. They weren't wiser. Simply, God chose to set his love on them. It had nothing to do with them. It had to do with him, his will, his purpose, his plan. But at the very least, you'll, you'll see God, God's doing some choosing. They didn't choose God. They didn't just show up out of thin air. God had to intervene and choose this nation. Otherwise, there never would have been a holy nation. Similarly, Don, uh, Don why don't you read Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 through 15. You can flip the page over to Deuteronomy 10. Behold... To the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So another passage of God choosing. Verse 14 harkens back to God's comprehensive sovereignty he owns everything he created everything he didn't have to choose israel for any reason but he did he simply chose to set his love on them and their forefathers and make them his own people our psalm 33 refers to israel as the blessed nation which god chose psalm 106 verse 5 israel is god's chosen ones jeremiah 31 this you got to turn to this one as well turn to jeremiah 31 this is such a powerful and important passage in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. If you find Isaiah, keep turning. Isaiah, Jeremiah, get to 31. Here's, in a second, Don. Here's a famous passage on the New Covenant. God's New Covenant promises to Israel where he will, he promises to, to save them, to make them new and, and born again, to give them his spirit and so forth. But I want you to look at the passage right after. After God makes these amazing new covenant promises, what does he say right after? Just listen and, and follow along. Jer- Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. Go ahead, Don. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. 
Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Did you, did you catch that? I mean, here's Israel, God's holy nation. He is chosen nation that he just chose of his own good pleasure. He's given them all these promises that they didn't deserve. And here's more new covenant promises. How do they know it will really come to pass that they won't fall off somewhere along the line? Well, God follows up the new covenant promises with this additional promise that he'll never let them go. These verses are teaching that God's choice of Israel, not only was it unconditional, it's also irrevocable. He chose them, and it's, that's it. It's a done deal. They're chosen forever. Think of the sun, the moon, the stars, the waves. Can you think of anything more constant that, that doesn't change? We have no concept of that ever changing. It just, it just keeps going. The, the earth re- revolves. The sun exists. The waves roar. And so he says, if, if, that, if that changes, well, then I'll, I'll cast off Israel. Then Israel will cease being a nation from before me. The point is, that stuff doesn't change. That that's permanent in God's creation. And, and likewise, Israel's election, that their chosen status as a nation, permanent. Really significant, both in eschatology, that Israel is still God's chosen nation because of verses like this. Even though they might be hardened for a time, and discipline, they're still his chosen people. But also when it comes to election, we see a facet of God's choosing irrevocable. Amos 3, 1 through 2, again, God points out that you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. And then, Don, really quick, read Romans eleven twenty eight. Just listen here. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice... They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That was Romans eleven twenty eight, which is talking about national Israel. And look, Paul explained there, uh, a temporary hardening has took place for national Israel. That's why they, they didn't believe, they didn't accept the Messiah. Most were cut off. A remnant has been preserved, yes. Well, what's to become of the nation, though? That's what Paul addresses in chapter 11. And he says that their hardening, it's not forever, that they will be restored. That right now, they're cut off in unbelief. But look, the gifts, the calling of God, irrevocable. All Israel still will be saved, he teaches. But concerning the doctrine of election, you see God's corporate election. Again, we're, we're just talking about corporate election right now. All we can say is truth about corporate election. Not, this isn't of individuals, but of a national entity. That their election, at least, was unconditional, irrevocable, even despite their sin and, and their unbelief. Their national status as chosen didn't change. That's, by definition, unconditional. And, and already we can learn a lot, though, from the fact of God's corporate election of Israel. Because we will find later on that Israel's corporate election as a nation, in many ways, parallels a, a Christian's individual election unto salvation. Like we said, Israel's election was unconditional. God did not choose them because of anything in them. Their, their great faith, their worthiness, their might. They had none of those things. He simply chose them unconditionally of his own will. Further, God's election of Israel is irrevocable. It cannot be lost. Even as they fell into unbelief, they were still considered the elect. And in the end, the nation will come to God. Now, that's not true for every individual in the nation. 
for any individual within Israel to participate in God's covenant blessings, they have to come to their own faith. But this now brings us to the concept of individual salvation and, therefore, individual election. Even in the Old Testament, we learn God always had a remnant. There was always, within the corporate nation, a, a subset of chosen ones within the chosen nation. God preserved at the lowest point 7,000 who would not bow the knee to Baal. And these are God's chosen individuals within the corporate group. So let's transition now and talk about individual election. So there's corporate election. Again, we're just doing like a broad study on election tonight. And the fact of corporate election is crystal clear. Nobody denies that. Everyone accepts that God corporately elected Israel. Let's get into now individual election, which gets us a little closer to some of the differences. Now, when it comes to individual election or God's choice, there's two facets of this, of individual election. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God electing or choosing individuals unto service, where they're just serving him, whether they're saved or not, they're just serving him. And sometimes God, or the Bible speaks of God choosing or electing people unto salvation. So let's look at those two right now. Next section your notes, sometimes God's election is unto service, unto service. And now we're dealing with individual election. These verses, we won't read for the sake of time. They're all very just self-explanatory. In number 16, you have God's choice of Moses, not for salvation, but for leadership. He chose Moses to be his leader. Psalm 105, God chose Moses and Aaron for service. 1 Samuel 2, verse 28, God chose the Levites to priestly service. God's doing choosing for service. 1 Samuel 10, 24, again, these, these verses are all in your notes. We're just summarizing now. Saul was chosen to be the first king, right? 1 Samuel 16, David was chosen to be the first true king. And that's very clear that God did the choosing there. David certainly wasn't chosen by himself, and nobody thought David should be king, but God chose him. 1 Chronicles 28, Judah was chosen as a tribe, and then Solomon himself was chosen as the next king. Judah was chosen as the tribe of kings, rather. Jeremiah 1. If you're already in Jeremiah, if you're there, turn to chapter 1, just since we're already here. Jeremiah chapter 1. Here's Jeremiah's election unto service. God elected or chose all the verbiage in these verses, it's all the words the Bible uses for election, predestination, God's choice. Sometimes these words are used of his choice for service. So here's Jeremiah's choice, God choosing him to be a prophet, to, to serve as a prophet. Follow as Don reads Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So uh, notice that as Jeremiah opens, God's calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. But in reality, God reveals to Jeremiah, he was called and chosen to and consecrated, set apart to be God's chosen prophet before he was born. You didn't have to wait till he was however old he was. God had set him apart from the womb to be his mouthpiece, to be his prophet unto the people. This is God's choice unto service. Same thing for Haggai chapter 2. 
You have Zerubbabel, who is chosen to serve God. And for a New Testament example, Mark 3, Christ chose the 12 disciples. Later we find 11 were chosen unto salvation. Judas was chosen merely to service. But he was, in, in that regard, elect unto service. He was chosen merely unto service. Now you also find, interestingly, God's election includes the angels. Did you know that angels are referred to as elect? Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says Christ will come with his holy angels. The word holy refers to them being set apart. They're consecrated. They're chosen by God. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.21 specifically calls them elect angels. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So he's just charging Timothy, but he mentions in the presence of, of God and his chosen angels. The word is literally eklektas, the elect angels. The same word for elect used all over the place. They were angels that were chosen. Which obviously means some angels were chosen, are unelect. You realize Satan and demons are unelect angels. They were, for whatever reason, however God did this. We'll talk about that later. Even angels have a distinction between those chosen, those not chosen, the elect, and the unelect. These categories merely or simply exist in Scripture. And God's choice, his election, even includes the Messiah himself unto service. This is not unto salvation. The Messiah needed no salvation, but there's a ton of verses. We won't really read them, but Isaiah 42, verse 1, Luke 9, Luke 23, just there's countless, which refer to the Messiah as being God's chosen one. The chosen one, that's word for elect. He's the elect one, the chosen one. Who's choosing? Well, God chose him. When? From before the foundation of the world to do what? A whole bunch of things, (laughs) namely procure our salvation. He's God's chosen servant the transfiguration god shows up and says this is my son my chosen one and so god's election extends even to the messiah unto service now it's interesting though so that that's that's a little you know handful of verses you can read more on your own god's election of individuals unto service now here again there's really no dispute No one disputes God's election of individuals unto service. So Arminians, they have no problem saying, okay, yeah, sure, God elects all these people, not unto salvation, but unto service. They have no problem with that. And they can even affirm that that's an unconditional choice, that God just unconditionally chose these people unto service. Well, again, we'll get into more of this later, but already it should strike you as a bit inconsistent Because wouldn't this choice of God just as much violate human free will? We will find a lot of their argument against unconditional election is that it violates our free will. Didn't God create us with this supreme free will and he can never do anything to to infringe our free will or overturn our free will? But think about Jeremiah, for example. He was unconditionally chosen before birth to be God's elect prophet just elect and the service but what about his free will like he didn't he didn't choose that jeremiah had a super hard life like one of the hardest lives of any of the prophets what if he didn't want to do that but he had no say in the matter he had no choice so to speak he was chosen before birth and consecrated he was going to be god's prophet he was simply unconditionally chosen does not already have a problem when it comes to his free will and that choice again 
any time you enter this discussion of supposed free will or unconditional free will, where God has his own free will, you have two forces of supposed free will. They both can't coexist. One has to overrule and overturn the other. We'll find later which it is. But it's interesting how Arminians, when the stakes are lower, because we're not talking about salvation, we're just talking about service, they'll say, yeah, yeah, the Bible talks about election under service. We have no problem with that. It's only when the stakes are higher that they all of a sudden have a problem. Just some inconsistency, but we'll explore that much more later. Just want to point it out. So, we've got corporate election. We've got individual election. So far, we've seen verses describing God's individual election unto service. Now, let's move into the last section, which is the biggest. A lot of verses here. We'll spend some time here. That sometimes God's election is unto salvation. Let's now look at some verses that very clearly say that sometimes God chooses people unto salvation. He is saying, you will be saved. And by definition, others who are, don't have that choice, well, they won't. So let's go through these verses now, just to establish the basic fact of election. Uh, once again, I'll say, both sides affirm that sometimes election is unto salvation. They differ as to how God makes that choice. We're just going to, tonight, establish the fact. So let's do that. Psalm 65, verse 4. Tom, would you read that for us? We don't need to turn there. It might be on the other side of your paper. Psalm 65. Oh, okay. It's just out of paper. No, I didn't print it. I'll summarize. It says, How blessed is the one whom you chose to, to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. Who is blessed in the Old Testament? The person that God chose. And he chose them to, to bring them into his holy court. The blessed person is the chosen person. Matthew 13. You got that one? Yeah. 11 through uh-huh. uh, 13. Listen to this. This is Christ teaching uh, before he gives parables. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Is Christ... Before and after, he's going to teach on parables. We study this in Mark. Do you remember, why did Jesus teach in parables? Because parables can be terribly confusing if you're not informed. Why did Jesus teach in parables? And the answer is that so that he could give his teaching where some people on purpose would understand and other people on purpose would not understand. That's what we just read. He says to, to the disciples... They, they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? That's what they ask. And Jesus said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. That sounds super unfair, Jesus. Why wouldn't God grant everybody to know the mysteries of the kingdom? Right? Shouldn't everyone get a chance to know? But Jesus himself says, no, that it was not granted to them to know. Who's doing the granting here? Obviously. God is doing the granting. And there are two classes of people, at the very least. Those to whom it has been granted, those to whom it has not been granted. 
And those to whom it has not been granted, they won't understand. They've got eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And this, is, this, this confirms them in their unbelief. It, it settles them in their unbelief as a judgment on them. It wasn't revealed as a judgment on these wicked Pharisees, for example, who in the context that's who Christ is talking about. But, but understand, Christ himself, we'll see many verses, he makes plenty of distinctions between those who have been granted, who have been given, who have been chosen, and those who have not. And, and God is the one doing this. If you don't like it, you've got to take issue with Christ himself. So, for example, Matthew 22, verse 14, he says, Many are called, few are chosen. He was giving a parable of the marriage feast. You know, a bunch of people were invited in. But at the end of the parable, one guy shows up, and, and the, the, the master's like, Hey, who are you? You're not in wedding clothes. And he forcibly kicks him out. Why was this guest removed? Well, Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. He was kicked out because he wasn't chosen. Many are called, few are among the chosen. Word for chosen, same word for elect. Those words are interchangeable. In the Greek, it's often the same word. You have in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And Christ mentions this group Three times called the elect. You want to do those in rapid succession, Dong? Uh, Matthew 24, 22, 24, 31. Three yeah. verses in the Olivet Discourse. Talking about end times, the tribulation. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then 24, 24 says... For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Then 2431 says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So Christ's teaching about the tribulation time. And back in verse 22, this time, as you know, will be so terrible that if it, the time were prolonged, everybody would just die. Now, no one's going to survive this thing unless God had cut the, shade, the, the day short. But verse 22, Christ said, well, God, for the sake of the elect, God has cut the days short of that time. And, several, and a few more times he mentions this group called the elect, the, the chosen ones. Who, who are these people? These are people in that time who have been chosen who will not be destroyed. That's a time of God's wrath poured out on the earth, the seven-year tribulation. And who gets it? Everybody, except these people. They're called the elect. In fact, God, Christ reveals, God is ordering this whole time period around the elect. He's moving and shaking based on their interests, because they're his people. He chose them. Luke 18, verse 7 it says, will God not give justice, bring about justice for his elect? All over scripture, you see a category of people called the elect. So it's a plain fact, again, that no one really disputes, because unless you don't take the Bible at face value or seriously, this group called the elect is all over scripture. Let's turn to John chapter 10. I want you, we have a couple of verses in John to go through now. So if you want, turn to John chapter 10.
And we've already done a lot of studying in John chapter 10. We won't rehash too much of that now, but with what we've learned in mind, just look at verse 29, where Christ says, you want to read that down, 29? Uh, 29 is, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, the, the context, Christ is a good shepherd. He's talking about his sheep. He has sheep. They know him. They hear his voice. They follow. Who are these sheep, though? <coughs> well, they're a group, verse 29, that the Father has given to Jesus. And being given, they're secure. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Kind of like Israel, given, chosen by God, irrevocable, can't be undone. So the, these, these people, the sheep... Who is the sheep? It's a group, but it's composed of individuals. He knows them all by name. These are individuals, not just an empty group. They are given to Jesus. Who's doing the giving? Which is a concept parallel to election. Who's doing the giving? Well, God is. There's a limited number. They're not all sheep, but there are some sheep, and they've been given to Jesus. You see this concept show up again. In John 17, once you turn over there, we'll come back to John 15, but look at the high priestly prayer. John 17. This is so huge. This is Christ, right before his death, praying to God for his disciples. But just pay special attention to who Jesus prays for and who he doesn't pray for. John, can you go for, give us verse 2, verse 6, verse 9, just to pinpoint some of these key verses? Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And then verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So again, in a critical passage, you see Jesus praying for his disciples. Who are his disciples? They are those whom God has given to Jesus. Those who have been given. And Jesus, in turn, gives them eternal life. So who gets eternal life? Those given to Jesus by the Father, and then those given eternal life by the Son. And notice how huge verse 9 is. Christ prays this high priestly prayer on their behalf alone. He says literally, I do not ask on behalf of the world. He's not praying for everybody else. He's only praying here that they would be secured in salvation, granted eternal life, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see the concept of possession, like Israel, now the sheep, all the people of God, they are God's possession, whom he chose and then gave to the Son, who are granted eternal life and secured in the Father's hand by the Son's work. Pretty significant there, where Christ, again, that doesn't seem fair. Jesus, you're, aren't you the Savior of all? Why wouldn't you pray for all people? Why wouldn't you intercede for all? Why wouldn't you pray for the salvation of all? Why do you only pray for the salvation security of these people that have been given? Well, this is the doctrine of election. Back, uh, back a couple chapters in John 15, verse 16. 
after teaching on Jesus being the vine and more teaching to his disciples, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Remember Christ's teaching, I'm the vine, you're the branches. This is teaching on now true believers because false believers don't bear fruit. So in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is not choice unto service. This is choice unto salvation because he also chose and appointed that they would bear fruit. Just like Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's, we are, we're God's workmanship and we are prepared to, to work out these good works which God prepared in us beforehand that we would live them out. Christ chose them. They didn't choose him. And he also cho- chose and appointed that they would bear fruit like every disciple does. Now, here's a, a powerful verse that you know, but just because it's so significant, I, I like you to turn to it just so you see it with your own eyes. Acts 13. Acts 13. We'll try and pick up the pace. We want to get through a lot of these verses in our time here. So Acts 13, let's, let's keep going. Short story, Paul preaching, many saved. Uh, but uh, the question is, who are those that believe his, his message? Who believes the gospel here? Who, who gets saved after Paul preaches? Well, Acts 13, 48, Luke gives us a window behind the scenes as to who gets saved and why they get saved. Why do some people respond and others don't? Acts 13, 48, look there while Don reads. When the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It just speaks for itself. I mean, I don't know how much more I can say to it. It's very self-explanatory. Who believed? Paul preached. Some people believed, yeah. And some people didn't. Why did some believe? Well, the verse tells you. They were appointed to eternal life. So, so they believed. And the others, why didn't they believe? Well, they, they weren't appointed. It's, it's pretty, pretty clear. Some Arminians will claim the only thing they can do with verses this clear is to claim that God's election, okay, it's got to be only corporate. So there are some, not all, but some Arminians, they will, they will just, that, that's, that's all they'll do. They'll, they'll say God's election is only corporate. So God corporately elected Israel, and then he corporately elected the church. But God never actually chose individuals to, to get in the church. That, that's up to you. God elected this, this concept called the church. This group has been chosen. But whether or not you're in that group, that's up to you. You have to place yourself in the church by believing. That's up to your free will. God only corporately elected this, this concept, this group. But look, that's just not what the Bible teaches. The church is not an empty class, but it's made up of individuals. There's a set number, and they've been given to the Son by the Father. God didn't elect a concept or an empty group of people, and this verse is very clear. These were a a bunch of individuals, and they're clearly demarcated. These individuals believed because they, as individuals, not just a group here, but these individuals were appointed to eternal life 
And so how many believed? As many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Simple as that. Now, Romans 8. Let's turn there. I'm sure you already know Romans 8 is a massive verse teaching the fact of election. Now, a lot more needs to be said. Exploring election, how God elects. That There's a lot more to be said. So like, like I keep saying, don't miss like the next month of teaching because it's all coming right now and in the next few weeks. But at the very least, Romans 8 clearly teaches the fact of election or predestination. I mean, it just it says the word itself. I don't know what you say about it. Romans 8, 28 through 30. You want to read that, Don? 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is a huge text, so we're not going to say much right now because next week and following, we'll come back and spend a lot of time here. So we're not going to do that right now. But at the very least, it mentions there are those who are predestined. There, there are people, believers, who have been called according to God's purpose, and they are those who are predestined. Now, you might have questions. What's up with this? Those whom he foreknew, come back next week. We'll talk a lot about that next week. But at the very least, though, this establishes a fact that there are some who are predestined. And also establishes another fact that those who are predestined necessarily will be glorified. They will be fully saved. Who are the glorified? Which means you're, you're, you're done. You're complete in salvation. It's all over. You're, you're, you're saved. Who are the glorified? It's the same people who are predestined. No more, no less. As many as were predestined, they will be glorified. That's why this verse is referred to as the golden chain or the unbreakable chain can't be broken. If you're among those called, chosen, predestined, well, you'll be justified, you'll be sanctified, you will be glorified. In case you're wondering, this is the elect. Notice verse 33. He synonymously says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? These are those who were called, chosen, foreknown, predestined, so forth. So that's a huge verse. More on it next week. But at the very least, you get the fact of predestination there. It's, it's, it's a biblical word. So however you interpret it, sure, words have interpretation. Words have ranges of meaning. We'll get there, but at the very least, predestination is in the Bible. Uh, Romans 11, since we're here, might as well turn to Romans 11, verses 7 and 8. Since we're here, another verse reflecting on national Israel, but telling us something about election. You want to read uh, Romans 11, 7 through 8, Don? What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Like I said, in Romans 11, Paul addresses the issue of Israel. And you have to realize the connection between Romans 8 and 9 and 10, 11. Romans 8, 
Romans 9, Paul says so much about God's election, his predestination. And, but Paul anticipates an objection. Like if God's election and predestination is so sure, what's up with Israel? I thought they were elect. How come they've been cast off? Doesn't that disprove God's election? Like if Israel doesn't get saved nationally, doesn't that like mean God doesn't really elect or, or, or finally elect? So in Romans 11, Paul is saying, well, don't misunderstand a temporary hardening with being, with being lost. Nationally, they're still elect, like we already read. And he says later in the chapter, all Israel will be saved. A partial hardening has happened until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, but all Israel will be saved. But he also explains why there is this partial temporary hardening of national Israel here. Verse 7, what happened? What Israel is seeking, they didn't obtain it. Why? Well, they were hardened. Those who were chosen obtained it. Obtained what? The the gospel, the truth. This is the remnant of Israel, which is in the church, like the the apostles. They were all Jews. They're the remnant now in the church of believing Israel. Why, though? Well, they were chosen. The rest were not chosen. It says even hardened. And referring to an Old Testament prophecy that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not. They were not chosen to believe. What else does it say? A lot of explanation to come, but just just reckon with the fact. Some are chosen, some are not. And, And God is the one behind this. Is he not? Now let's go through just a few more before our time's up. Romans 16 just mentions Rufus. He's, he's a chosen man, an individual referred to as elect. Same thing over in 2 John uh, verse 1. It's not in your notes, but John writes 2 John to the elect lady, this lady in the church. He calls her the elect lady. Ephesians 1, we'll come back to if we have time. We'll spend plenty of time there in the future. Uh, let's have John, listen, listen closely. John, give, me, give us... 1 Thessalonians 1 4, 1 Thessalonians 5 9, and then 2 Thessalonians 2 13 through 14. Three verses, they kind of go together, all written to the Thessalonian church. And, and I'll comment, just listen to these, these three verses here to kind of wrap it up. Go ahead, Don. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. And then 5 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I know we don't have a, let me look at that. I know we don't have a lot of time to, to turn and, and really delve into the context, but in brief, both times Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and they're, they're, they've been going through the ringer. He's trying to encourage them. And so that's why he brings up their election. They're, they're facing intense persecution. And, and, and so Paul is trying to you know, keep them going, build them up, encourage them in light of that. And so three times he mentions their election, that they were chosen. If Paul was simply reminding them that it was they who chose God, that would hardly be an encouragement in a difficult time. 
Rather, he's encouraging them by reminding them, like, I know you guys are going through a hard time, but don't forget, God chose you. You're chosen. No, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. He chose you. Maybe going through a hard time, but he's still in control. He says in 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Kind of sounds like God's in control of their destiny. And he's determined that their destiny won't end in wrath, God's wrath. They may have a hard time in this life, but they will be saved. They need to press on. Paul's trying to encourage them. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, he says he encourages them by saying, look, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And it was for this he called you through the gospel. They were chosen, chosen among God, chosen by God for salvation. And this, they should be encouraged. They should they will at least say, well, yeah, this may be really hard right now. We're a lot of persecution, but at least we're safe in the arms of God. We've been given by the Father to the Son. We've been chosen. That's the whole point. We also see notes how this choice was unconditional, irrevocable, but we'll see more of that next time. I think that'll do it for now. On your own, if you haven't already, just read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's another, I mean, we're out of time. That's another huge passage where it mentions God's choice of us beforehand. Before the foundation of the world, we were predestined unto salvation, into Christ. Twice it uses the word predestined in regards to us, that we were set apart by God before we were born. Another huge verse. We'll see it more later, so we're okay skipping it right now, but... Uh, And there's even more verses in your notes. But we're just out of time. But at the very least, I I think it suffices to say we've accomplished our our very simple goal tonight, which is simply to establish the fact of election. The basic fact is, in Scripture, over and over again, some are chosen. Not all. Some are chosen. Some are in this group called the elect. They were individually chosen to be there by God. Even before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose them. He gave them to the Son. And to them, in turn, is given eternal life. They will be saved. They're not destined for wrath. They're destined for life. And they will find life. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. They will come to life. These are the elect, the predestined, the chosen. Now, all this being said, if it's true that both Calvinists and Arminians believe all this so far. They believe in this fact of election. Then you might be wondering, okay, what's, what's the debate all about? So if you're saying they both on paper believe all that, what's the, what's, the, what's the debate then? Well, their systems differ in how God makes his choice of sinners to salvation. Neither side can deny the fact of election. It's just too clear. There's too many verses that say the word elect, election, chosen ones, predestination, predestined. There's too many verses. So it's so clear. Calvinists, in turn, they understand understand God's election to be unconditional. Meaning, how does God choose people? God chooses people based on his free will, his purposes, his plans, his good pleasure. The how is up to God. It's his choice. To the contrary, Arminians, they believe God's election is not unconditional, but conditional. Meaning God chooses sinners 
based on the foreseen condition of their faith in Jesus, which they must come to by their own free will. In other words, God chose or elected those whom he foreknew would choose him first. The way it works is before creation, God foresaw. He used his foreknowledge to look forward into the future. And he saw who would choose him of their own free will. And these are the elect. God then chose them. In reality, though, they chose God first. They're the ones that chose God of their free will. So what's the determining factor in God's election? Calvinists will say it's God's will. Arminians will say, no, it's actually man's will. It's our free will. That's the real divide. It's the how. Is this conditional election based on our will or unconditional election based on man's will? Next week, we'll come back devoting our whole time to exploring the conditional side and all their arguments. And in the weeks thereafter, we'll get to the unconditional side and all their arguments. See what the Bible says. So join us next week. Draw a little preview. I gave you in your notes some of the historic definitions from, uh, from the, the remonstrance of the Arminians to the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's just for your own reading. Do that if you will. But hey, just come back next week and thereafter and you'll, we'll get into it. It's going to start to get a little heavy. But nonetheless, this is what you're here for, I guess, right? It's why you, why you signed up or came. So uh, we'll, we'll trust you to come back next time. For now, let me close in a word of prayer. As our time is up. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this just, in a way, simple Bible study tonight, just looking at some verses in your word. But all is instructive and convicting and powerful. That There's no arguing with your word. It's clear. And, and it, it cuts it straight. You are a sovereign God. You're in control of all things. You sit in the heavens. You do as you please. You order all things after the counsel of your will. That's true in nature. It's true among the nations, and it's true in, in the lives of individuals, even in regards to salvation, Lord. You are simply a, a mighty, powerful God in control of all things, including salvation. We know the world shudders at the thought, but, but you're still on the throne. What can we say? We take comfort knowing you're in control. We take comfort like the Thessalonians, knowing that, that we've been chosen only by your grace, like Israel. We were not smarter or, or mightier or holier. We were just lost sinners, enemies. How you chose us, why you chose us. We confess at the very least we didn't deserve it, Lord. And so this, by this we're encouraged. By this we give you great glory. At the same time, there's much more to be said, Lord. We pray you, you keep us until then and you, you just instruct us by your word. We want to be humble before your word. Your word has the answers, not us, not men, not our ingenuity or rationality. We just want to sit at the feet of your word and, and listen and be instructed. So humble us before your word and open it before us in the weeks to come that we would figure out how you're in control of salvation. But may we submit also to you as our sovereign God. None can oppose you or your will, but we bow down. You are supreme. We exalt you. And may we exalt you in our hearts as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah.